City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Yes, here we are in City Limits and, uh, well... Thousands and thousands of people walked over the tar and cement in the Treasury Gardens on Friday. But this is City Limits. I'm Kevin Healy and Meg Kimber just said yeah and she's pressing the buttons which keeps us on air. Morning. And um, Meg, uh, today we've got a uh, full-on show. We've got a a, Mm. a, a Nulembic Shire. Tell us a bit about that. Well, we're going to be joined by Ben Ramcharan who's a campaigner with the Love Your Green Wedge campaign which is... Um, a group of citizens of the Nullumbik Shire who are campaigning to keep the green wedge of Nullumbik um, in right. as good a condition as possible. And when I say good, I mean, you know, not not heavily developed and, and kept as a green space. Yeah. Yep, and that's that Eltham Diamond Creek sort of area around there. That's Nullumbik, I mean, it's kind it? of it's north a, of Warrandyte, right? Yeah, it's around that area. So yeah. it's, it's that area out there. Yeah. Um, I went to the local library to a book launch a couple of Saturdays ago. And it Up was, in Nullumbik? It's Eltham oh, Library. I presume yeah. that's in Nullumbik. Mm. And, it, um, yeah, and it's a bloody good library. There was a great couple of great exhibitions on there at the time. Yeah, right. So that was good. Um, and the second half of the show, we're going to have a bit of self-indulgence and look at 3CR itself or community radio generally itself. I was um, six, uh, self-indulgence? No, a hard-hitting examination. Ah, that's it. Oh, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'll, I'll pour some tea while we have this hard but of course, one of our um, one of our long term staff members here, Juliet Fox, has in the last few years done her PhD around questions regarding community radio, and so yep. and it's now come out as a book, um, or revised version, I guess, with the PhD has come out as a book, yeah, um, called Community Radio's Amplification of Communication for Social Change, which is a bit frightening as a title, but it uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's it's it talks about uh, what's Juliet's as looking at. from a PhD perspective at Community Radio. She looks specifically at this station where she worked herself and also another station where she did work, which is the uh, station in Timor-Leste. And she looks at those two as specific examples. But Mm. uh, anyway, Juliet's coming in to have a yarn about it Mm. and um, that'll be the second half of the program. So... We'll Good just, show. Uh, so, as you say, it won't be self-indulgence. Um, <laughs> and of course, sorry you couldn't make the climate change march on Friday, but I was there. Well, yeah, I didn't see you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you were there. <laughs> Do you know, I I ran into so many people, and on the one hand, you could think like, well, you know, there's you know maybe 150,000 people there yeah, by estimate. Yeah. Um, and so, someone I spoke to, I was like, I can't believe how many people I ran into, and they were like, well, the odds are kind of high that someone you know will be there but I was like how likely is it that I'm going to actually be in the same area as them but run into heaps of people I didn't thank goodness I always think that those when they're that when I always think they're really great rallies when you don't keep running into people you know because it means there's There's so many people people there there. that's true it was Um, huge yeah it was and um, there were a couple of I mean people I'm sure all our listeners would have been there so we won't go into it but but I bit the bit that I loved I kept laughing because we I, I sort of managed eventually to get into the gardens of Took a struggle, but and I stood under a tree about about fifty to hundred yards in from Spring Street, 
but then every now and again, the speakers, of course, were down the other end, down mm. the hill, and mm. every now and again you get this wave of cheering and then clapping. So mm-hmm. we'd all cheer and clap, but you got yeah. no idea what you were cheering or clapping about. You just no <laughs> idea. I couldn't hear it. And I was up that top end, you know, after mm. between Parliament Steps and the mm. gardens, and also mm. same thing. And mm. I turned to my friend and I was like, do you have internet on your phone? We can listen to what the speeches are mm. on 3CR online. And um, but my friend said no, like the phones are not working. Basically, mm. everyone must have been Instagramming yeah. and messaging and whatever, whatever, whatever. Well, that's a usual because it was it was packed from the. I came out the Burke Street entrance at the station. It was packed from there up to the gardens when I finally got into the gardens. But yeah. I, you know, had to struggle my way up through people. Uh, the gardens were packed, as we know. Uh, the streets were packed, and then up that side, yeah, beside the Treasury, that area that goes into the theatre, right along there was absolutely yeah. packed and packed. Yep. So, yeah, just absolutely huge, huge. Absolutely huge. Wonderful. Yeah. Which brings me to the Herald Sun. <laughs> um, <laughs> Saturday, yeah. Saturday morning, oh, the Herald Sun, front page, Lynch's mob and a wraparound about the footy the night before. Um. Page two, page three, save our swing. Family fights to stop removal. And there's a two pictures of the poor little child and the council wants to take the swing in front of his house away, his granny's house. Um, but then you get to page four and, yes, um, 150,000 joined climate protests. Bigger than grand final. Yes. And the story itself wasn't too bad. Uh, it's, only, it's, it's quite small relative to, I mean, if it had been another thing they yep. supported, it'd be... Wrap around eight pages of all that. I mean, if someone was trying to build a sky rail, say. Yes, that's right. Well, or, it got it, the sky rail one with nine protesters the other week got more coverage <laughs> than this. Um, and they do. Then part of the story is to an academic who told students take a selfie and uh, you'll get a pretty good mark or something. Outrageous. You know, so it was, it was yeah. blackmailing Outrageous. children. Outrageous. <laughs> um, you then turn the page and there's two more pages of finals week uh, and a. Picky of a well, Brownlow thing, of course, a picky of one of the footballers' wives with lots of legs showing. You then um, you then go over to uh, what's the next one? You've got evil engineer, a whole page to some terrorist somewhere, uh, something they've exposed. Yep. But then even worse, you get further in, and there's two pages devoted, two whole pages, believe it or not. A tour to win back the public. Megan can silence the critics. That's, they're and talking about me. Two pages. Well, it could have been, but <laughs> you, did you marry a prince? Uh, I mean, no. no. <laughs> oh, dear. No. You're stuck with me instead of the studio. That's <laughs> oh, terrible. No, no. A tour to win back the public. And, and, oh. then, and then the their itinerary for every day of the thing is listed, and it's in Africa. They're across <laughs> Africa now. That, that got, therefore... Three times as much coverage as 150,000 people protesting about the climate. Yep. And we all know the big news about the protest was whether everyone was going to be able to get to the footy okay, right? Oh, that's yeah, true. That's that was oh, the real terrible. story there. Yes. Oh, how awful. Yeah. Well, the footy took over next morning anyway. Mm-hmm. The Age did give it pages two and three and a bit of coverage. but What um, was on their front page? They I can't think now, but mm. they had... Um, but they had a pointer on the front page to it and said okay. P23. And, okay. it, and it sort of covered most of P23. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. Okay. Sip of tea. But then the other interesting thing in the Herald Sun, and I've just realised, hang on a tick. Um, this is live radio. Yeah. This is great live radio. <laughs> I forgot to take my reading glasses out of my bag. So I'm going to have to uh, 
to get them out now. Here we are. This is just exciting people no end. You then got to page 23 of the same day. No relationship to the climate change rally back on page four or whoever it was, left-hand page. And there's a small story tucked away on page 23, climate crisis hits kids hard. Now, they've been, you know, they've, they're virtually saying that the kids should all be in school and not worrying about these things. Is that what it says? It doesn't say that, but that's what the headline says. And then it says... Fear over climate change and species extinction is creating a snowball of anxiety in children as young as 10, presenting to psychiatrists with concerns over the fate of the world and their future. Mm. Experts, experts warn it can have serious effects on youth mental health. And it goes on in that um, vein for a few paragraphs. Um, when your brain is not fully developed, there is a tendency to catastrophize. We call it emotional reasoning, the weather, the confused oh, feelings no. with fact. They are led to believe the world is coming to an end, and they see that as fact. Every time I talk to a kid with anxiety disorder, they tell me about climate change. Um, well, maybe en- they should do something about climate change. Though. Maybe they should. Yeah. Youth Environment and uh, Sustainability Group Millennium Kids 2018 report found a link between young people and feelings of anxiety, depression and disempowerment. They found 96% of 7 to 25-year-olds considered climate change to be a serious issue. And that was tucked away right at the back of the book somewhere oh. on the same day. But it was way behind Megan and Thingo in Africa. Well, and their, their tour itinerary. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah, that seems right. Yeah, so that's about that. Look, we'll, we'll leave it at that, I think, for today because we've got oh. a couple of important interviews and let, let's go to our first one about Nillan Bookshire. Victoria's roadside drug testing program is not about road safety. In last year's governmental inquiry into drug law reform, it was noted that Victoria's RDT program is falling behind on latest evidence regarding impairment. Currently, Victoria Police can charge people for detection of either cannabis, amphetamines or MDMA. But those detections do not correlate with impairment. Impaired drivers should be removed from the roads, and that's why we're urging an inquiry into Victoria's RDT scheme to ensure that the resources that are currently employed to make our roads safer are being properly used to make our roads safer. Help us refocus road safety onto what makes roads safe. Sign the e-petition, parliament.vic.gov.au forward slash council forward slash petitions and look for the Inquiry into Drug Driving Reform, Petition 117. A 3CR supporter. Introduce uh, So we're back on City Limits on 3CR and um, we've got Ben Ramcharan on the line from Love Your Green Wedge. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Thanks for having me. Right. Okay, Ben, and um, there was a meeting a couple of weeks ago. Well, just tell us the background. There was a meeting at the council. They've, put out a, they've obviously put out a document looking at the green wedges, and you've got concerns about where this might lead. Um, one, tell us um, exactly where the Shire is. It's around Elthamway somewhere, isn't it? And, um, and secondly, just what the campaign's about. Yeah, um, so Nolimbic, sort of northeast of CBD, um, Elfham. Uh, part of it, and then if you move out from there, you'll be in the Green Wedge areas, um, which is places such as North Warrandyte, Kangaroo Ground, Crystal Hill, Bend of Island, St Andrews, uh, Strathewan and Earthbridge, um, and it's on Wurundjeri land. Mm. Um, yeah. So the campaign is uh, started when the current council decided to review their Green Wedge Management Plan. So Green Wedge Management Plan is the plan that council has to develop to set out their policy at strategic focus uh, for managing the Green Wedge. 
Um, so the current plan is valid until 2025, and we know it's, the current plan is strong, but we're mm-hmm. still losing vegetation. So it's clear that a review is needed to make it stronger, but we worry that this process is making it weaker. Uh, rather than reviewing it, they've completely rewritten it, and the new plan um, is quite threatening to the Greenwich. So we, uh, the community is trying to uh, force council to at least change the plan uh, so we can uh, keep protecting the Greenwich into the future. Right. And so people were generally, the community was generally happy with the plan how it was. You said that it's been rewritten completely rather than just renewed. Yeah. Yeah, it has. Uh, the old plan was, um, was very, very strong. Um, and it, it's obviously out of date. It's been there since 2010. And yeah. we know that vegetation is still being lost in the Shire. And that's happening both legally and illegally. So it does need to be strengthened, and I think the community is behind that. But we think the current council has an agenda where they want to weaken it, and that's why they're reviewing it so early and why instead of just changing the current plan, they've rewritten it from scratch. Mm, we'll come back to that, but but green wedges um, across Melbourne in those outer areas, um, councils and governments have had green wedges for ages, and they always seem to uh, simply get broken. Whenever developers want to move or as the city de- develops, um, we see those green wedges effectively ignored. But it seems to me that in Nillenburg, um that hasn't happened quite as extensively as in other areas. Yeah, yeah, and it's, um, that's completely true. Nillenburg's one of the most... Um, most preserved green wedges out of all of the ones in Melbourne. Um, and that's partially because when the Melbourne Green Wedge was, was established, the key aim behind it was conservation. And then Melbourne Council was established as the Green Wedge Shire in 1994. And the key strategic aim of Melbourne Council was to conserve the Green Wedge and preserve biodiversity. And also the community has always defended the Nolbit Green much vociferously whenever it's been under attack because locals just love living here so much. Mm. What do you think is the uh, motivation for the change in um, in direction in terms of protecting the Green Wedge? Um, I think what you mentioned before about developers is quite true. Uh, we have a local group in the area called PAL, which stands for Proactive Landowners, um, they're very rich and noisy, have a lot of money, and want to make more. So they're very much an anti-Greenwich group, and they got elected in the last election uh, using empty threats, um, telling people they wouldn't be allowed to ride horses anymore, uh, telling people uh, the bushfires are getting worse because of extreme greenies. Mm. Um, and one of my favourite quotes is, uh, it is with some sadness that I advise the demise of the realistic environmentalist. Wow. So there's just the, yeah, the... There's all this rhetoric going around which they've used to get into power and now we have people on council who are um, very much pro-development, anti-Green Wedge and although 80% of the community supports protecting the Green Wedge, uh, four out of seven of the current councillors don't Mm. and so that, you know, they seem to be winning at the moment. Yes, and I noticed just reading through your material that uh, you're not just talking about preserving land and preserving existing environments, but also the, you're reclaiming land. So a lot of that land you mentioned about farms and things, but a lot of that land obviously has been cleared and you're trying to reclaim it. Yeah, yeah, to an extent. I mean, um, as I say, Nolbert Green Wedge is um, one of the most intact green wedges, so a lot of the land has been cleared, but there has obviously been some clearing and if you go around 
some of the areas in the Green Wedge at the moment, you'll see places where, um, especially on the side of the road, vegetation has been stripped away for whatever reason. It's, some of it's legal, some of it's illegal. And we really need an effort to revegetate. Um, and I think that needs to be really honed in on in the plan. And at the moment, it's not. Yeah. They, I notice also in one section they use the word balance, and I always think when it comes to the environment, one of the most dangerous words is balance uh, from the other side. Um, and you say this needs to be amended as it indicates that our thinking is oppositional. That's, that's the environmental people, obviously. It implies yeah. that there is a need to trade off environmental health against other considerations. That That's a pretty disturbing thought, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really is. And you see that word balance popping up in every single part of the plan, mm. um, in every single goal that they've got. They say, we need to balance the environment with mm. this goal. Um, we need to balance the, the environment with equality, with the prosperous economy. And you've just got to ask what that actually means in practice. Mm. And what it means is they will, for example, cut down half the trees to stop bushfires, or at least that, I think that's what's in their heads. They won't be able to do that because of state government rules, but that's what they're thinking, I think, when they say balance. Mm. So, um, uh, go ahead, Ben. Um, yeah, so I think to, to some extent we do need a two-way relationship. Um, we need a relationship where we can benefit from the Green Wedge, and we do benefit from living in the Green Wedge. Um, but we also need to give back, and that's I think that's forgotten when council uses the word balance in their plan. But the, the word balance could be used quite well if you were saying we need to balance what we get from the Green Wedge with what we put back. Because if we do have that two-way relationship, then people learn to love the Green Wedge and they also learn to protect it. Yeah. So, and then the realities of living in the Green Wedge, what is that like? Obviously, people who live in Melbourne benefit, like in the inner parts of Melbourne, benefit from these uh, this ring of, of green areas around Melbourne. What's it like actually living there? Uh, locals love it here, and I think everyone can find their own special thing about living in the Green Wedge. For me, as a cyclist, I just love being able to go through the rolling hills, to be at one with nature, and to have all the scenery. Mm. And I have a few quotes, actually, from locals um, after we asked, what do you love about living in the Green Wedge? One person said, my family has lived in Olympics for as long as I can remember. The beautiful greenery and community have always warmed my heart and grown my passion for conservation please protect my environment. Another person said, "Free freedom for children to play, climb, ride their bikes, and stop to look at the birds and local animals. I love the bush in Nuremberg. And another person said, I love how close we are to the city, and yet so quickly we can be in such beauty. The trees and open spaces are so special, and as soon as I get here, I feel that I can breathe deeply. And that's actually really true, because one of the ideas behind having green wedges was that no matter where you are in Melbourne, you're always about 20 to 30 minutes away from nature. And I think that's one of the real benefits they have for our city. Yeah. Yeah. As a cyclist, I must admit I wouldn't mind going down those rolling hills, but the going up is <laughs> a bit of a challenge. Um, but uh, anyway, also on that question of balance, you also, you also say some areas of vegetation are more significant or valuable than others, is in their statement. Um, again, you regard that as a worry for the stuff they consider may not be as valuable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When you start sort of prioritising things, um, you, you've always got the um, the risk that someone will want to build somewhere and they'll be put into one of the less valued or one of the areas of concern 
And we know there's pressure to push the urban growth boundary um, so as some of the non-Greenwich areas can expand into the Greenwich. And we know a lot of people want that to happen. And the worry is if you consider some of the land on the outskirts of the Greenwich less valuable, which is, I think, mm. one of the motives behind that statement of less valuable vegetation. If you consider that less valuable, then it's much easier to sort of slowly push the urban growth boundary across, mm. which means the green wedge gets smaller and uh, the non-green wedge areas get bigger. And it also means even in the middle of the green wedge, there could be an area that may not have many trees, but it could be a valuable wildlife corridor. Mm. Um, we have one plot of land in North Warrandyte which um, um, it, the trees there aren't huge. And um, a few years ago, council tried to use that as an excuse to approve a, a housing development, which would have cut down 746 trees. Um, and that was right inside the Green Wedge. Mm. And the community fought it and won, which was really, really good, um, good for all of us to see that, that victory. But... Um, mm. Yeah, by considering that plot of land less valuable, they were able to justify a development there. And that plot of land may not have had the most valuable vegetation, but it was such an important wildlife corridor, which is why the community got so fired up about it when we found out. Because mm, the difficulty with that is that then once certain parts get degraded, um, that's used as an excuse to degrade more of it, basically by saying, oh, but look, it's already a sort of a mixed-use space or whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that, that's what happened, you know, death by a thousand cuts. Exactly. That, that, of course, brings us to, in fact, the, the Urban um, Development Institute of Australia last week reported that Victoria suffered a 21% drop in building approvals, etc. And they say we need to be building an extra 66 to 68,000 houses every year for our projected population growth. And that's the sort of uh, pressure on government that's also putting pressure on things like green wedges, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. And we need to really think about how we manage that. Um, we, we have lots of space in Australia. It's a huge country. And I think if we could manage that population growth properly, and that means putting jobs in the right places um, and hopefully putting housing in the right places, then we can still have a healthy growing population without having to creep into the Greenwich land because that Greenwedge land has always been there to be the lungs of Melbourne and to be protected. So I think when you start putting new housing development into the Greenwedge, you've crossed that line. You're not no longer in the urban growth boundary. You're in an area where uh, the population isn't necessarily meant to grow because we need to preserve that vegetation. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so the, the so the timeline is that the the council's made a uh, they've had a consultative committee and then they've made a draft plan and asked the community's response. And from your material, it looks like there's been an overwhelmingly um, you know a response from the community that uh, they want the protections to be stronger. What yeah. happens next? Yeah, well, we were so proud and overwhelmed at the community's response. 746 people made submissions, um, and 523 of those submissions wanted to prioritise the protection and enhancement of the environment. Mm. Um, we had 66 people show up to speak at two council meetings over the 10th and the 11th of September. One person even brought a choir who sung a song with them. Um, and over 80% of those speakers spoke against the new plan. Mm. Um, so 
we were really, really proud of that. And uh, the outcome of that was that three councillors voted against the new plan. They voted basically to just abandon it. Mm. And four councillors voted to continue with it. So unfortunately, it still goes on. But that's only by one vote. Mm. So um, the final decision will be made at the 26th of November council meeting. Uh, And before that, the council staff have been instructed to amend the plan in response to the community feedback, which sounds like a really positive thing, but we expect that whatever changes are made are going to be quite minimal Mm. and probably designed to look like they're addressing our concerns rather than actually um, addressing our concerns and achieving the outcomes that we want. So we know that there are some councillors that are fighting hard to make sure the community will be heard. Um, And unfortunately, we know that the other four are less keen, but we know that they're feeling pressure socially and politically. Mm. And we only need one of them to flip. So I think there's a lot that the community can do in Nolanbeek and also in wider Melbourne to um, to help make that happen. Mm. The, the 20 or so percent of um, submissions and or um, expressions on the night itself, um, which didn't support um, the environmental position, what, what, what was their position? Um, it really varied between different people. There were a lot of very rich landowners who owned land in the Green Wedge and wanted to develop on it. Um, we heard a lot of speeches from them. There were speeches from people who were concerned about the bushfire risk. Um, mm. And there were a number of other speeches where people weren't necessarily um, in favour of the new plan proposal to, or the new plan um, sort of anti-environment um, mm. sentiment. But they were talking about other issues. Um, such as the way unsealed roads are maintained in the Green Wedge and stuff mm. like that. So mm. while that 20% wasn't wholly anti-environment, anti-Green Wedge, um, yeah, a lot of them were very much rich developers, people concerned about bushfires, etc. Mm. Right. And mm. so what's what needs to happen before the next council meeting to... Oh, November 23rd. Was it 23rd of November, you 26th said? 26th of November. Um, uh, 26th. 26th, right. Yeah. Um, well, I think there's a lot that people can do. This is an issue that affects the whole of Melbourne, not just the people who live here in Nolabic. So I think it's reasonable to say that everybody has a stake in this and everybody should be able to speak out. It's really important to talk to people, spread the word, raise awareness on the issue. And we're, what we're asking people to do is write to the councillors in Nolabic. Uh Don't write to the council itself. Um, if you go to the Nolanbeek Council website, you'll be able to find the email address of each councillor. Mm-hmm. And it's really important to email them and just let them know that you don't support the new draft Green Wedge Management Plan and you'd like to see a plan that prioritises the environment. Mm-hmm. And we'll also have a petition coming out soon and we want to try and get the whole of Melbourne to sign that petition because, as, as I say, it affects the whole of Melbourne. And if we can get signatures from the whole of Melbourne, hopefully it'll be able to sway at least one councillor to change their mind, and mm. that way we can stop the plan going ahead. Yeah, all right. Well, look, good luck with that, Ben, and uh, we'll yeah, uh, we'll you. keep it. Look, we'll keep in touch, particularly yeah. around that November twenty sixth date. We'll um, catch up maybe just before or just after, just to see um, one where it's going to or where it's just gone, and um, hope to goodness the campaign succeeds. Yeah. 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 Thanks, really good. Okay. Thank you. Well, Ben, thanks so much for being on. Thank you. And uh, 
That mm. was Ben Ramcharan from um, a group that's – what's the group called? You've got the name Love of it? Your Love Your Green Wedge. Love Your Green Wedge. They've got a great website that has a lot of details. So definitely I'll be signing because it's such a beautiful place. I got there yeah. to swim and be around in the trees and it's yes. so close to Melbourne. Yeah. yeah. It would be yep. a shame to see it. Tragedy. Yeah. That's right. All right, so that's that, and um, shortly we'll we'll take a break, come back, and we're going to be talking shortly to our very own Juliet Fox about 3CR. There's a bit of self-indulgence here today. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out, man. Hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. I just pay my way out. This is a miracle. Go with the fellas, whatever the weather. We got drinks with umbrellas. You got time to wine, I keep them down in the cellar. We got time to shine, I do that shit at Coachella. Throwing brunches and lunches, lunches and crunches. Living life in abundance, don't really worry about nothing. Then I pull up, hop out, wave at that cop now. Stop sign, ran that, oh that fine, that's not out. And hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. This is a miracle. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, my life is incredible. Miracle. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, my life is incredible. Okay, Juliet Fox is in the studio, and uh, Juliet, this is a uh, an interview that's really taken about five years in the making, <laughs> hasn't it? <laughs> we, we talked about interviewing you about your PhD when you started it. Yeah. You've long finished it, or fairly long finished it, and it's now come out as a book, and yep. we've finally got round to talking about it. Yeah. Now, it, it is called Community Radio's Amplification of Communication for Social Change. It sounds a bit strange, but it's um, it's all in there. Juliet Fox is now a doctor, obviously, of course, but she also has worked here for many, many years. You also worked at the Timor Leste station you talk about. Um, and um, but but just to background it, why why did you decide to do a PhD? I guess because you're working here. But why did you come from the angle you've come from in terms of going about it? Well, I did a masters at Melbourne University in global media communication, and I did that in 2011, 2012, and I hadn't been at university for a long time, and I suppose. Maybe being surprised is overstating it, but I was disappointed yet again that within the curriculum there was nothing about community radio, which of course was what my world was and is. Um, So I was particularly interested in trying to create some work that contributed to more discussions in academia about community radio. And then... I did a subject called Political Economy of the Network Society, which was really the first time at at a university level where I went, ah, okay, here's this 
um, academic perspective. It's a small, you know, subfield of communication studies that I can really relate to that actually I've been engaged with and it is my perspective, but it also exists in academia. So that was actually quite exciting to realise that. And the person who was delivering it was also great. And he ended up being my supervisor. So I think it was a combination of wanting to see this sort of stuff in academia, but also finding, being exposed to a a theoretical framework that um, I could engage with and finding the right person as well who was willing to support mm. how I wanted to approach it and not try and push me down some other avenue. Right. What's the uniqueness of that approach that you saw that you identified that was different to usual academia? Yeah, so the the approach is called political economy of communication um, and... Really, the uniqueness will will not be something unique to um, you both or your listeners. Is that the, oh, that's the end of this interview? <laughs> <laughs> is that the critique engages with the fact that we live in a capitalist system and that mm. media and communications mm. um, operate under capitalism, and that in order to understand where power lies, how power is experienced, we need to consider that wider structure in which media and communications sit. So that might not sound particularly unique to um, you both or your listeners, but it is unique in in the approaches that are taken to investigating um, media and communications, which is not to say that other elements don't engage with it and I think that there's an increasing engagement with it um, but it is unique in in that way. So in academia generally in the media communications area it's a little bit like media and communications media happens in a vacuum it's sort of like a cultural vacuum or they don't really acknowledge the influences Um, of capitalism? No they do and obviously it's a a huge Mm. and varied um, space but I think probably like the bulk of the society there is very little open recognition and analysis and critique of the fact that we're not only in a capitalist economy, but we're in a capitalist society. And that is increasingly so as everything around us is commodified. Um, And yeah, so it's taking that approach to to understanding media and communications. Mm. Mm-hmm. In fact, you use those two terms uh, throughout the book, and everything you write is, is, has it as a background. You just mentioned the um, the um, political economy of communication, but you also talk a lot about communication for social change. Those two aspects, which is sort of the background of the whole book in many ways. Um, just, yeah, I think you've just explained it a few yeah. bit. Any further explanation? Of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that. Um, uh, there's quite a bit of the theory that I used is actually not in the book because I removed quite a bit of that. I had to condense um, my PhD mm. a bit and the expectation is that you take out quite a lot of both the theory and the methodology. So there's, uh, you, I can send you the, the extended <laughs> no, version, Kevin, no, for okay. your next read. Um, Can't and wait. so in, in the... Um, in the PhD, I, I actually have some diagrams and I suppose the, the larger circle is communication for social change in terms of the field that the research is in. 
And then there's two smaller circles that overlap each other inside there. The, the, the larger of those circles is political economy of communication. Mm-hmm. And the other circle that overlaps is citizens media. And in, in that overlapping mm-hmm. part is community radio. But I suppose that wider field of communication for social change is um, largely actually used in kind of a development sense and I would say has there's a lot of problems with the field of communication for social change as it has been rolled out over the decades as really an extension of colonisation and an extension of Western dominance throughout the world. But at the same time, like many of these things, there's some really fantastic core elements of it. So I was trying to re-engage, as many other scholars are as well, with those core important elements um, of communication for social change about being try, you know, recognising that communication is central to any kind of change in the community, both in terms of being able to articulate ideas of change but also being engaged with personally um, voicing things. Uh, So I was trying to position myself within that critical bit of the Mm. communication for social change space and I suppose bring back a little bit more of that and contribute to um, drawing on some of those foundational social good aspects of the communication for social change field rather Mm. than the colonising... Institutional development. Yeah, the development aspect of Uh, it. Against that background, then, Mm. the two stations you looked at specifically were our one here, 3CR, and um, RCL, it's called, isn't it? That's um, right. In Timor Leste, where you also worked, it's an isolated station in, yeah. a, you know, in the out, way way back somewhere. Yeah. Um, how do they conform to those that background you're talking about? How do they, in terms of, of social change and their effectiveness, etc.? Can you answer that in a quick, shortly? Yeah. Well, I suppose um, both clearly had in foundational intentions of contributing to social change. So one of the um, aspects of my research was that I didn't just want to drop into the now. I wanted to also look at the history and the foundation of those stations in terms of what they were aiming to do. So in looking at that, both of them were very clearly about creating positive social change. I mean, the Timor-Leste example, obviously that station was created um, in the early 2000s. So very shortly after um, the independence vote and the terrible consequences of that from Indonesia. And it was absolutely about rebuilding and creating, you know, an improved society where people were actively participating. So absolutely engaged with social change and absolutely continues to be. So I was there in 2001, 2002 when I worked there as a volunteer and then I returned however many years later, it was like 12 or 13 years later to do the research and, you know, the the country is still facing a lot of challenges and is a very poor country Um, and absolutely the station is still very much engaged in trying to create um, an increase in people's awareness about issues, in education and all about trying to create positive social change ultimately mm. as 
is this station mm. really yeah. when yeah. when you step back and that's what's been great about doing this research as well and what I also wanted to do was to try and step back from the grudge of um, the practicalities the beautiful practicalities of this place um, and try and have a wider think about what is going on here mm. because the uh comparison that I can see there is that um, 3CR was a pioneer uh, at the days of when it was founded. It was, you know, one of the first community radio stations in Australia, right? And similarly with Timor-Leste, that's uh, that's a, a moment of, of change. And 3CR was about uh, workers and women and Indigenous Australians, like, reclaiming or expressing their voices in, in a space that was not didn't make space for them at that time. That's right, yeah. and that was very much the experience of um, the Timor-Leste station, RCL as well, out in Los Palos in the far east of the country. So they were really the first station in, in that country mm. as well. So that was a, a point of, of similarity in choosing them. Um, and, yes, very much about having a voice when there had literally been no grassroots mm-hmm community-driven, um, community-run media mm-hmm. at all. Which is the question that I that comes to mind for me is why radio as opposed to print media or, I don't know, something else? In that yeah. particular space, radio was very much the uh, obvious choice and there was an exploration of other options and there were a few different reasons for it, um, primarily around literacy. Mm. So there's very low literacy rates. Right. Um, so, you know, creating a community newspaper, while that could have been great, um, wouldn't mm. necessarily have served the bulk of the population. Mm. Um, and also just the low cost, both for the receiver mm. and for mm. the producer. It's an FM, it's a um, station, mm. it's, you know, the costs of running an FM transmitter are pretty low. And obviously for a, a receiver, all you need to do is buy your little FM um, receiver. Mm. On that point, you also make comparisons with digital um, technology these days and how that can be part of communications, but you still keep coming back to the point that, from our point of view, radio is still more important. Okay. Well, well and, so and, 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 sorry, and more egalitarian in many ways. Than, but it's put a point yeah, that, yeah, I think that, that what we've seen in the expansion of digital technologies and you know, a, a few decades ago, you could well have thought, oh, well, there won't be a need for the likes of 3CR in this mm. amazing egalitarian internet mm. that everyone's telling us we're about to have. Mm. Um, but <laughs> any day now. Any, <laughs> no, any day now, but clearly it hasn't. Will we, be, will we be here next week? <laughs> clearly it hasn't panned out it like has that. has not at all. And yeah. it's an extremely corporate space. Entirely corporatized space. Digital, you mean? Digital, yes. Sorry, Um, (laughs) and so the the need to have community owned, community controlled media Mm. spaces has not disappeared Mm. with the advent of digital technologies, and I would say it's potentially increased as we go further down this Mm. um, accelerated path of capitalism Mm. and. And commodification and a, of people's time and attention, basically. And of their communication. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, the, I think there's lots of work, more work to be done around uh, what digital communication is doing to our mode of communication 
and what the commodification of it, because it's not just the digital mm. nature, it's the commodification that is, is occurring yes. within the digital space. It didn't necessarily have to be like that, I suppose. Mm. Um, mm. But it, it very much has Well, capitalism been. controls it, so that's how it ends up. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and I use the term digital capitalism to really highlight the centrality both of all of those digital technologies and also the the centrality of the the digital in our communication um, relationships and and production to make it clear that uh, you know capitalism has managed to continue and expand largely off the back of this expanding space. Mm. And it is to our detriment when it comes to ideas around communication for social change, which then brings us back to the importance of a community radio platform in terms of the wider issue of democratising the media. Yeah. And in fact, on that point, and picking up what Meg said earlier, uh, the quantification issue, the one you make, a, you stress a fair bit the fact that the voice is something that can't be commodified, uh, short of, say, singing or acting or something, but in the term in which you use it for this sort of station, the voice is something that capitalism can't commodify. Can you expand on that a bit? Well, yeah, clearly, as you say, in terms of um, maybe singing and a variety of other uh, aspects that where it can be commodified, mm. I, I think... I suppose it can also on stations like 3AW, Absolutely. For instance, you know, I, I suppose the, the point that I'm making is that... Um, voice can sit outside that commodification process and certainly that the communication through voice is is not inherently like a, a market exchange um, uh, exercise and particularly then when we place voice within a community owned community controlled uh, media outlet voice is sitting outside that commodification and that mm. capitalist structure as much as anything can sit outside that. Mm. And so, therefore, it's a particular type of voice is what I am arguing that is enabled and emerges when it's able to sit outside those structures. Does, does it sit outside because it's, um, it, it can't be, you know, monetized because it's not very popular or it's not, uh, you know, it's not needed by capitalism or is it sort of subversive to well, the whole... Well, in, in the community radio setting, I suppose it is sitting outside of, of capitalism because much of what the station is trying to do is attempting at least to sit outside some of those commodifying forces. And I suppose also, you know, there's quite a lot of... Um, theory and uh, academics talking about how it's, you know, it's, it's material production of, of voice from the inside of an individual and that that is enabled to be um, separated off from those wider commodification processes. Mm. But not always. Mm. I mean, my, my argument is really that if, if voice is enabled under a community-owned and a community-controlled structure, then a particular type of voice is, a, is allowed to emerge, which is not saying that 
therefore it only emerges in a community radio setting, yeah. that those set mm. of situations can happen in other settings as well. But within those particular settings, a particular type of voice is able to emerge. And I, it took me, like, that was kind of one of those things that I muddled over mm. quite a lot because... Um, you know, I did interviews with people, I listened to content, I did a listener feedback um, questionnaire and I suppose kind of halfway through I started muddling more over, well, what's particular about this type of voice and why? And it was really a culmination of all the different things in terms of ownership and purpose and um, foundations in terms of the broader aims of what was trying to, what the station was trying to do, that then went on to facilitate this particular type of voice mm. that I call regenerative. Voice. And you also you mentioned it in just in in that in that answer, but um, structure is something. Structure of the station is something you obviously consider very important. Yes, and it's it's through that structure or maybe on top of that structure or within that structure, um, again, that a, a particular type of agency um, by the individual is is enabled and the structure of a station like 3CR in terms of its um, democratic structure and its involvement and, again, similarities with the Timor station enables a particular type of experience and a particular mm. type of agency and the two are intimately connected you you have to have that that structure in order to have that voice and that agency yeah because mm-hmm. <clears throat> media i think sort of you if you think of about it at all unless you volunteer or work in the media or something like that if you think about it it tends to be something that happens to you that you are sort of um, an observer of or like you engage with in a very one-directional way uh, as a consumer of, of information. And something like 3CR completely changes that around and puts you in that position of, like you say, agency is such a powerful word there because yeah. it emboldens people to share their voices. Yeah. yeah. And another key thing that came out of speaking to people was this idea around reality as well and reality being reflected um, to people but also reality being expressed by people. Mm. So this idea, as, as you're indicating, Meg, that you, you watch the television and it's just like, mm. well, you know, that I was at that event, it didn't look like that to me mm. or... Um, how can you be talking about all of this without talking about that bigger mm. structure that we all live in and and where am I in in that representation whereas within a community radio setting you know that that repre- representation is self determined which is really important, and people are um, enabled to to articulate their reality mm. and that was a really important theme that came out. Particular, well, mm. not particularly, but but certainly from the early years as well. I talked to a couple of people yeah. who had been involved in the Concrete Gang in yeah, right. in yeah, the early right. years. Great, <laughs> to, you know, really amazing to speak to people mm. like that. 
And you know, and the, one of them made the point he, he couldn't believe a union trade unionist could have this access to air and be yeah. able to go out and say these yeah. things. Yeah, and to be able yeah. to get on air and kind of tell it as it is, as it were, and. And then there's that question of kind of like, well, why is that important? Why is it important for an individual to individual's reality to be represented and reflected? Well, you know, it's intimately important in terms of ideas around democracy and participation, and also about kind of personal mm. development and and freedom as well in terms mm. of um, and of course the other end of expression. it is the, is the listenership which we hope is part of that community we develop That's as right. such you talk about but um, interesting in, in a lot of your um, a lot of your re- your studies of well the the, yeah, the, the study you did of, of the listeners um, many of them in fact said they their attitudes changed to various subjects by hearing those, those matters discussed mm. on 3CR, which yeah. is pretty important. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so listeners were just asked a couple of questions in terms of their experience of listening, one around whether it changed the way they thought about anything and the other one around whether it changed whether it changed anything that they did. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I suppose often, particularly with this station, mm. we kind of th- you know, think that we're preaching to the converted or that, you know, I I really don't like that saying and I I don't think it's true and I suppose the research indicates that it's not, that people are being exposed to new ideas and they're having a reality reflected back Mm. to them as well, which is also came out within the listenership where, Mm. you know, people said, oh, you know, it was just such a relief to tune into The Breakfast Show and have them talk about all of these issues that I find really important but I never hear or see reflected. It's almost, you know, just so reaffirming of people when they're able to have Mm. that reflected back to Mm. them. Mm. So, yeah, that, that sense of reality and... But for for listeners, yeah, that it had changed things that people did. Absolutely. There was a clear indication. And when I first started the research, one of the early people that I spoke to was um, Bevan Ramston, who was an early founder of this station. And it was actually him who said, so how are you... Well, what are you doing with the listeners, and how how are you going to know that you're that anything is is actually changing? And I was like, mm, <laughs> okay, better do something about that. And it, it was a it was such an important point, and and also I suppose you know great great to hear some of the the mm. the stories around yeah, yeah. people changing things. I de- you know how mm. they thought about stuff or actual mm-hmm. activities that they they were doing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, given we have a radiothon every year and all that sort of stuff, let's let's go there for a moment because you mm. another strong point you make is that to be really independent, you have to be independent of government and big business. Yeah. So we mm. are forced to raise our own money, and yeah. of course, and we do need money to survive. But yeah. uh, that that financial independence is something else you you make a key absolutely, point and and that kind of was also one of those elements that came out with regard to the type of voice that was mm. able to come out because people really felt that financial independence and that was an important aspect of how they felt like they could talk about certain issues or how they felt like they could speak just generally. They knew that they weren't. Um, hamstrung in mm. any way by anything in in particular in that regard. So it was a 
a, a fundamental aspect of the way that they felt like they could express themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, we're getting close to the end, unfortunately. There's so much more about this bloody book we could talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she put that on the and the reprint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is it around for sale? Um, apparently you can buy it from places. Um, I, I'm not exactly sure where it is in any bookshops, but certainly if you Googled it online, sorry for the... Google, um, search, search for it in your mm. particular search right. so engine. That, that capitalist digital <laughs> capitalism. <laughs> um, yeah, right. <laughs> you would certainly find it and you can purchase it online. So, But hopefully yeah. it will be part of the curriculums for, you know, um, ad- from communications and media so that there's a bit more of a, a balanced representation of what's really happening. In the yeah. yeah, well, that was very much the aim mm. in not only doing the PhD but then actually getting it published as well. Yeah. It's published by a large international mm. publisher called Palgrave Macmillan. It's part of a communication for social change series. Nice. So, yes, my – and I'm, you know, I'm super pleased that that has happened because that's just another level of actually inserting this material mm-hmm. in to, as you say, various mm. either academic subjects, courses, or just coming up in yep, searches. student searches exactly. as they go and Which have a look full at circle. the space. Where it all started. Yeah. yeah. Right. So after five years, we've done the interview. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, Kevin. Juliet, look, thanks for that. Congratulations, Dr. Thank Fox, you. these days. And Thank um, you. thanks for coming in. I know you, you weren't anxious to talk about it, but <laughs> you got through it. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> And next week, Meg, we've got to go because Joe's going to have him bursting in the studio right now. But um, next week, transport. Right. um, And there's plenty to talk about there, let me tell you. As always. Yeah. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. Man, hush what